1: Are you ready to begin?
2: All engines are started.
1: That looks really good.
2: So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, That's
3: wow, really it's good. going up so slowly.
2: The state of the state flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices.
4: Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event?
2: Yes, I'm all set there. Yeah?
5: Hello, it's Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And we've come to Mars this time. It costs a lot less than Elon
3: Musk imagines. That's because we're at the Mars Yard at Airbus Defence and Space in Stevenage, which is about 30 miles north of London. Now, it's a, a barren place, not much atmosphere, and, and to be honest, Mars isn't much better.
5: It's a giant sandpit, basically, um, with boulders, a back scene of the Martian landscape stretching out in the distance. In fact, if you get down close, you're not really aware you're in a big warehouse at all. And at its centre is... A Mars rover, and occasionally, if you look at it very carefully, its little eyes at the top, its little camera swivels backwards and forwards. This hall is used to test prototype Mars rovers for the European Space Agency's ExoMars mission to Mars in 2020. And this time in Space Boffins, we'll be talking about the first ExoMars mission due to land on Mars on the 19th of October. We'll also be celebrating the end of Rosetta, hearing about the world's fastest man. And after the triumph of their Race for Space album, what will public service broadcasting do next?
3: Well, our guest is Ralph Cordy, who's the head of science at Airbus Defence and Space. And uh, this is where the design for the Rosetta mission that's orbited and landed on a comet was actually first drawn up, isn't it?
0: That's right. This is where the engineering was done for the for the mothership of uh, Rosetta, which has recently ended its, its mission in a spectacular fashion. And it's, uh, I think it's just great looking back at its mission and the engineering that went on all those years ago to turn it into what it's been.
3: It has. It's been incredibly successful. Launched in 2004, Rosetta has spent the last two years, well, for over two years in fact, examining a comet until its recent mission end by a controlled crash landing on the surface of the comet. Uh, I assume you've been following its progress considering Rosetta was born here.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's been fantastic. Not, not just for us, but obviously for everybody else who's been looking at what's going on, uh, following the mission. Um, I think the public engagement in Rosetta has been
5: fantastic.
3: Yes, um Richard, I've got to say here is Rich is wearing the T shirt that I brought back from Mission Control as yeah, I'm, I'm
5: completely on brand. On <laughs> message, on yeah. brand.
3: Which has got the animation of the Rosetta orbiter and the animation of the lander on on the comet and in fact we were talking just before we started recording about um actually how how much emotion that little animation caused and and even you
0: absolutely even me there have been times when I've seen that and I've got to say the, the the odd tear has appeared um, you know, we're not hard-hearted, totally. We, we, we do the engineering. We know it's all made out of titanium and other materials. But actually, to think about what it's doing, how far away from Earth it's been, what it's trying to achieve, it's um, combined with those fantastic cartoons, it's been very, very emotional.
3: Fact, give us a twirl, Rich. Just turn around so I can, you can see the back. I love it. It's done the Rosetta mission. It's got all the dates, of launch, first, gravity assist. Like it's a pop tour.
5: Man twirls on radio. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Absolutely, and I'd recommend to anyone who hasn't looked these up, have a look at them. They're on YouTube, they're on other places, they're fantastic to look at and they'll make you appreciate what this mission's about and how you can get across the interest and excitement in a space mission to people.
3: Exactly, and this is how the extremely popular Rosetta Animation concluded the mission.
4: Finally, Rosetta's big day had come. It was time for her to join Philae on Comet 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko.
3: Well, the mission was quite rightly described by one scientist as audacious because it's produced incredible science, so many memorable moments, and plenty of firsts. It was the first mission to orbit a comet, the first mission to make a controlled landing on a comet, and the first mission to land multiple times on a comet when the uh, Philae lander bounced across the surface after its fixing harpoons failed. The mission's final act, a slow descent by the orbiter onto the comet's surface, was orchestrated from ESA's European Spacecraft Operations Centre, or ESOC, in Darmstadt, Germany, and I was there.
0: All stations, some on the briefing room, uh, we just have had the loss of signal at the expected time. This is another outstanding performance from Flight Dynamics. So we'll be listening for the signal from Rosetta for another 24 hours, but we don't expect any. And so um, this is the end of the Rosetta mission. Thank you and
2: goodbye.
5: My name is Paolo Ferri, I'm head of mission operations at ESA in
3: Darmstadt. Now, this has been a huge journey for you, a very successful one. It's a cliché, but how does it feel now that it's, it's all yeah. over?
5: Well, it's very sad today. In this moment, uh, we are all, all very sad. Uh, we feel it as a loss, <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you noticed, but in the first five, ten minutes after we lost the signal, nobody could say a word in the control room. So it's a sad moment. On the other hand, uh, uh, rationally, we realise uh, it's been another major success of Rosetta. The spacecraft has never disappointed us, and even today, it did its job down to the last minute. It was not at all guaranteed, because it was not designed to, to land on a comet. So all this was really an attempt, and uh, Rosetta did it very well. So this is,
4: this is the positive part of it.
3: Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank
4: you, much, yeah? Thank you. My name's Ian Wright. I was a principal investigator of Ptolemy, which is still on the surface of Comet 67P. I
3: love the way you say, I was, because of course it's over now.
4: No, I am the principal (laughs) investigator. Of course, we've seen Rosetta being switched off today, and everyone's very emotional about that. But interestingly, Philae is still switched on, you know? We never switched the lander off, so it's actually still alive.
3: (laughs) So technically, it could be Philae.
4: You know, I think technically it is like possible. Rocky
3: films just uh, keeps on going. Yeah,
4: I think technically, uh, although quite unlikely, um, it is possible to detect the carrier signal from Philae uh, from Earth, and uh, there has been talk about a campaign yeah, to actually do that nothing comes of it there's no scientific value to doing it but you know uh, it's one of those challenges that uh, sort of seem you know almost delicious in a way
3: so what was it like then i was um, outside in an ob van <laughs> sort of with a vt editor so i was slightly I, I i got the sense of excitement from just seeing it on screen but what was it like actually being among scientists watching it
4: it was uh, very very strange um Personally, I'm I'm not sentimental, so to me, it's the end of a mission, so what? We always knew it was going to be the end of the mission. But, of course, um, the collective emotion from uh, colleagues and and people who've worked on it for a long time together was pretty powerful. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you could sort of cut the atmosphere with a knife in, in the room that I was in. We were getting, obviously, the feed from the control room, and those guys in there were obviously very emotional and uh, so yeah it was it was uh, it was very strange it was not like the phil landing uh, it was a completely different sort of uh, feeling so yeah
3: more like a sort of deep sigh as opposed to uh, a cheer uh, yeah.
4: Oh, it was, yes, it was very measured. Uh, uh, I mean, it was a standing ovation, ultimately, um, and it was polite clapping. You know, there weren't any whooping, there wasn't any whooping or high Sorry. fives. we're European. <laughs> no, but... <For> now. <laughs> you, <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, it, it just wouldn't have been appropriate. And, uh, yeah, yeah, for the next, I don't know, half an hour or so after that, everyone was shaking hands and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, some people were obviously either in tears or close to tears, so um, it was very interesting, very strange. I hope there's some anthropologists in the room studying this because it's an absolute fabulous case study, I think. Ian
5: Wright, who led the Ptolemy Instrument on Philae, and before that, the head of Mission Operations, Paolo Ferry. Meanwhile, I was here in Stevenage, where, as well as the media and VIPs, many of the original team who designed and built Rosetta gathered to witness its final moments. Among them, Ian
1: Costello. So we were responsible for the overall design of the spacecraft, the design, mechanical design of the spacecraft, and then the mechanical and thermal analysis, and procuring all the bits that went into that. So we worked with these suppliers to make sure it all fitted together, and then at the end we were responsible for the overall testing of the satellite in the thermal and mechanical area. So did you build any bits? Did you <laughs> fix any bits on? Well, my only claim to fame is there's one screw on that spacecraft that was quite difficult to access. So while I was actually in the integration hall one day, some guy said, oh, we just spend this. So it was sort of like a quarter of a turn at a time. And so it took me about half an hour to tighten this one screw up. But, and that's the only thing I did touch on it. I don't normally touch satellites. But as far as you know, that screw has never come loose. <laughs> I, I'm not aware that it came loose, no. I think it's still in there, yes. It's
5: a phenomenal project when you look back at it, just in terms of its its lifetime, yeah. from launch to to wake up to orbit, and
1: then the lander release, and now finally it's going to end up on the yeah. comet it was sent to investigate. Yeah, that's true. Right. I mean, from from my personal point of view, we we, we, don't, we weren't involved in the design of the instruments. We were involved in the satellite. So the big thing from my point of view it's first of all getting through the launch environment so from a mechanical point of view making sure it survives a launch and then from a thermal point of view as you said the wake up so it spent two and a half years just sitting there I think there was basically an alarm clock that said every 24 hours am I there yet? No, go back to sleep sort of thing so so from that point of view that hour bit my personal bit was a success of that, but I do share the mission you know the fact that it 's been a fantastic mission, even though the lander only had a few hours on the, the comet. The satellite still produce some fantastic science for people, so it 's really good to be part of it
5: there aren 't many missions that have an end of mission <laughs> event with the media there is channel yeah. four there 's itn yeah. here there 's the BBC various bits of the BBC here, national newspapers international press i mean that rarely happens some satellites i mean envysat they just just stopped
1: yeah i think it must be the guy that's actually going to press the button to sort of drive it you know crashing a satellite in the name of science it's a sort of unbelievable thing isn't it and i'm i'm hoping they're going to get some good pictures as they go in and good science and and things so yeah no it's nice to have an end because we we, one of the communication satellites i worked on recently we, we decided as a group to get together just to have a i think somebody made a cake and sort of just did it that way so yeah you're right they just normally Fade and, and fall out of the imagination. Yeah. How do you feel about it ending
5: up on the comet that it, it went to study? Is this the best end, as far as you're concerned?
1: Well, I'd not thought about it before, but yeah, what, what, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, so it's good. It's, yeah, it's a good ending. Yes, I'd not thought about it, but yes, yeah, a good ending. So something you turned a
5: screw on to <laughs> fix and tested is going to, in
1: perpetuity, <laughs> orbit orbit the sun. Wow yeah i'd not thought of that you just do you you know you sort of do your little bit and it on, on a it's a big project with a lot of people on there you just do your little bit and you never think that far in the future do you? i mean it was what six, 14 years ago when i finished working on it so yeah never even thought of that but, yeah
5: rosetta engineer ian costello and well that that's the end isn't it i mean it, it, it is quite it is quite emotional oh what's your cake done there was no there there were, there were there were buns but there was no cake
3: well you were saying that I, I wasn't with you remember no 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 but
5: there was no cake here was there a cake in Germany? oh yeah no
3: there was a massive cake in fact there at the rosetta after party um there was a cake that i kid you not that was probably about a meter long and about half a meter high and it was chocolate and it was in the shape of the duck shape so it was a duck a black duck shaped Chocolate comet cake, <laughs> and there was lots and lots of Prosecco uh, going around and it was lovely to see the scientists actually chillax a bit more uh, and it it was as if they could uh, let their hair down and uh, show off some tattoos <laughs> they, they were you know it it, it was wonderful and, and the atmosphere was fantastic, but it sounds like. Things were. were um, I didn't, you know, realise there was obviously a, as much media almost here that, than there was in Germany.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a big event for us. It's it's been a real roller coaster of a of a time. You know, ten years, if you like, of relatively quiet. You get the occasional tour of children around the site, being told about this this famous comet that no one can pronounce the name of. Churyumov-Gerasimenko. Of Thank you very much.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've said it often enough over the last. 12 years <laughs> and
0: then bang you go through the wake up you go through the uh, the, the uh, rendezvous the landing all of that business um and the fantastic discovery of the feli lander in the last days before the the end i mean it's just just perfect so yeah we've been riding along with this as well and uh, i think to have a celebration here in 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 our factory i think is entirely appropriate
3: what i do wonder though for uh ian's sake was that the one screw that he was responsible for wasn't attached to the harpoons that failed to attach the filet lander
0: i can be confident that
3: it was
5: attached (laughs) to a part that worked perfectly (laughs) what was extraordinary because i had to add to all this is for the two minutes or so before the loss of signal everyone was just silent in the canteen here at airbus watching this graph on a screen. I've never seen nice. so many people watch a graph where you saw this little little spike on the graph and then the spike went. Mm. And it was quite emotional.
3: Yeah. It, to be honest, the, um, I think Ian Wright summed it up a bit uh, right. It, it actually seemed a slightly um, almost deflated. And that's why a lot of people didn't seem to know quite know how to react because it was like a collective sort of, oh, you know, it, it's over before the, the sort of applause... Um, actually actually happened so there was yeah there was some sort of acceptance and uh, pause for thought and and reflection i think there was no whooping like unessa though they do whooping very well though
5: but there was prosecco which makes it very much a european mission (laughs) this is space boffins with richard hollingham and sue nelson we're in partnership with the naked scientists
3: you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, and uh, we now have we've we've passed the three thousand Twitter followers uh, mark. So thank you very much, and uh, do get in touch with us if there's uh, any questions you've got, and uh, anybody you'd really like to hear on the podcast, oh, ideas welcome.
5: Now on to the next exciting mission on ESA's agenda, which is about to land on Mars. <laughs>
3: ExoMars 2016 launched on the 14th of March this year, and its lander, Schiaparelli, is due to touch down on the surface on October the 19th. Now, it's the first landing since Curiosity in 2012. And and landing on Mars, it seems, you know, commonplace, because seem so many rovers on there. But it's not easy, is it, uh, Ralph?
0: No, not at all. I mean, you, you mentioned the Curiosity landing. I mean, that was... However many minutes of terror during the, uh, the descent, the nervous energy that gets pent up, because we know it's so difficult. The idea of entering the atmosphere of another planet, of safely going down to the surface and landing safely, that's a fantastic achievement. And 19th of October, we're going to go through it again.
3: I actually saw Schiaparelli and the orbiter uh, in the south of France, uh, it's... Uh, Talisolenia Spass, uh, spas, that's right, yes. I have, to, I have to remember where I've been and where, which sounds terribly blase, doesn't it? But it's normally. It can't, stri- have been Talis. it can't have been Talis, that's in Italy. No, there is a Talisolenia Espace in. in oh, is in there? Cam.
5: Oh, Can. Yeah, so you're, you. na- you're name dropping. I am, I'm just name dropping <laughs> clean rooms. And do
3: you know what? All I saw, and that's basically it, I got, <laughs> that's all I saw was a clean room. I briefly glimpsed the sea. <laughs> At the beach before spending the rest of the time inside a great big building and clean room. But it was amazing to see it in the flesh, A, because the orbiter itself was so large. It was one of those ones. I mean, we passed different spacecraft on our way to the, the, the Mars yard, and they're all fairly small, you know, a metre or so, whereas this was a couple of storeys high, although the lander, Schiaparelli, which is this sort of curved, almost pyramid Curvy, just about a meter or or so across. It's, uh, it's, and you've got we've got here a rover, some sort of prototype rover behind us, which is only about a meter or so long and maybe two meters high. It's it feels very compact.
0: Yeah, we don't build anything deliberately to be big in space. Um, all the infrastructure, all the rockets to get things up into space, um, that comes at a, at a price. We do things deliberately as small as we can. Um, and in, in this case, the, um, the design of the, 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 the lander is such to test out technologies for, for landing on Mars. And eventually, for our 2020 mission, it will all be designed specifically to carry the rover down to the surface of Mars.
5: Now, I noticed you said 2020. This has happened in the last few months. It, it was the 2018. It was branded ExoMars 2018. It's now rebranded ExoMars 2020. Is it now fully funded? Are you confident that a rover prototyped here will actually end up on Mars?
0: It's been a long journey from the beginning of uh, this mission. And I think we've gone through a number of um, aspects, changes, changes of relationship as well. The mission started off as a purely European mission, but then we formed a partnership with the United States, which wasn't possible to continue with, and now we're in a partnership with, with Russia. And Russia will be contributing a launcher, which we're very grateful to, uh, and also a, a landing system, which will help with the landing in of the 2020 rover. Um, so it's, it's come a long way. Uh, We're coming to an important decision point at the beginning of December where the, um, the delegates, the ministers from the countries which make up the European Space Agency will decide on the final tranche of funding for this mission. So we're we're hopeful and we're confident that the reasons for going ahead with it are still there. There's excellent science and fantastic engineering involved in this mission. So we're hopeful that those ministers will agree to
5: that final tranche of funding and we can then fully go ahead confidently towards the launch. And this will do something that no other rover has done before, which is to drill into the surface and actually... Look for the places where there might be life, because anything on the surface is going to be just eroded away isn 't it
0: that 's right You can look
5: back at the the fantastic rovers that
0: NASA have put on the the surface of Mars um, robot geologists understanding the makeup of the rocks, um, a, a, a robot looking at the past history of conditions on Mars these are all adding to the understanding of Mars and the potential for life. What we need now and what we're doing differently with, with ExoMars is actually going after that life or traces of it in the past itself.
3: The one thing, though, about this current mission, the, 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 the one that's about to land, is that the Trace Gas Orbiter, as its name suggests, is going to be looking for trace gases, and in particular methane, because methane has been detected on Mars. It could be a geological cause but it also could be potentially from microbes so from from life so there is a quite a lot of science that that could be got out before you even get there from from this mission
0: absolutely it's got its own scientific purposes Um, and just like we we are developing satellites to go around the earth and look in detail at the trace gases in the earth's atmosphere that's the purpose here and it will give us a view on whether there's really methane there how long it's present for where it is at its greatest concentrations and other gases as well in the atmosphere, it will tell us so much more about the processes going on in Mars's atmosphere and about the, the sources and sinks of those gases.
3: Now, Schiaparelli is a, effectively a technology demonstrator more, th- more than anything else. It hasn't got a rover, it's going to land on Mars, it might do a few little um, environmental sort of censoring where one, whilst it's uh, on on the planet. I suppose you might as well if you've gone all that way. But how, how much of the technology in terms of the descent and the landing is going to be used for ExoMars 2020? Would that affect the rover, for instance, or is that completely separate?
0: Well, there are certain technology elements on the descent system that are going to be used, are planned to be used on the, the, the rover mission. Things like the the radar altimeter that's going to monitor this this descent and trigger certain actions, parts of the parachute system... Um, things like that are going to be contributed to the, 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 the later mission. So we're very um, interested in the success of this. We're, we're confident, but uh, we will be watching it very carefully because some of that technology will be used again. But I must pick you up because there is good science being done on this. And in fact, good science being led by, by scientists in the UK as well. It may not be very long lived. It may have a period of hours or days on the surface. But while it's descending and while it's on the surface, it's actually going to do some interesting stuff science about the, the, the weather conditions and environment
5: of Mars. Now, we've spoken many times before, and I know you are not a big fan of putting people on Mars, but the big story over the last few weeks in space, apart from Rosetta, has been Elon Musk talking about his Mars colonisation, the idea of maybe a million people in a Mars colony. Is this completely crazy? Twitter or, seems to think, so. Yeah, <laughs> or is there some... Basis to this. I mean, this is a man with an awful lot of money who wanted to build a rocket and has built a lot of rockets now. And is making money from rockets. Yeah, and I think this is the important thing.
0: He's got a vision. Um, Whether we share that vision or not is another matter. But along the way, he's developing important technology. He's been developing rockets. He's developing new rockets, new rocket motors. Those could be extremely relevant to all sorts of things that we will be doing in space. So the results of what he's doing will be be of, of lasting value. Now, Mars itself... Do we envisage a colony of a million people or more on the surface of Mars? Well, personally, I don't, and I, and I have problems about the, uh, about the, the idea of going to, to Mars with humans. Mars, I think, for the moment, is a very precious place in our solar system that we need to thoroughly understand. Um, It's also incredibly difficult as we know so there will remain technological barriers to putting people onto the surface of Mars Um, and I think there needs to be a debate about whether that's what we want to do in the long term. Um, Personally I I do think when it comes to millions of people our spacecraft is our home the earth and that's the one we need to be looking after and ensuring that we're, we're dealing with going into the future. I'm excited by the idea of travelling to places like Mars, for sure. I mean, I can't, I can't deny that. But I think we have to think very carefully about that and think whether, also whether the technology will let us in the, in the foreseeable future.
3: I love the fact that we're just hearing a plane overhead. It sounds like we're in Mars, but with some traffic in the background and a plane overhead. So, in fact, this Mars yard is already colonised, isn't it?
5: Well, let's go back to the dawn of the space age now. And back in the 1950s, one of the big questions facing the early astronaut programme was, what can a human body stand? You know, what sort of accelerations, decelerations, drops and falls can it survive before it breaks? Today, we'd probably use computer models and crash test dummies to figure it out. But back then, one man decided the best way to test the endurance of a human was to experiment on a human himself. In 1954, Doctor and Air Force Colonel John Paul Stapp became the fastest man on Earth. But it is amazing he survived. I've been speaking to author Craig
2: Ryan, whose book on Stapp is called Sonic Wind. Stapp believed that a couple of things. Number one, that if you weren't willing to do it yourself, it probably wasn't safe enough to be done. And number two, he was a doctor. He understood what we needed to learn from these experiments, and part of what we needed to learn was the subjective impressions of what happens. And so he just literally could not think of anybody who was who would be a better qualified experimental subject than himself, and he was a courageous man and very driven man, and so... He uh, exposed himself to all kinds of almost just ridiculous um, forces that, uh, that, you know, they, he, he broke bones. He lost fillings in his teeth, broke all the blood vessels in his eyes. I mean, it was, it was brutal stuff that he did, but it was also important, and he was willing to do it himself. And I think that was, that was a, a, a big part of the, the credibility that he gets for all this work that he did.
5: Give me an example of one of the experiments. I mean, I suppose the most famous is that the sledge in the desert, where he was propelled along on the on this sledge to simulate high g
2: forces. Yeah, I'll tell you the story of that particular experiment. It was December tenth, nineteen fifty four. And Dr. Stapp had himself strapped into this vehicle we call a rocket sled. It's basically a steel soapbox racer on a 3,500-foot rail track with nine rocket engines on the back of it. The rocket engines fire, and Stapp is propelled along that track uh, to a speed of, this is going to be hard to believe, and you need to think about it in a minute, 0 to 639 miles per hour in five seconds. <gasps> But that's not the important part. That was a land speed record that lasted for a quarter of a century, but that meant nothing to Stapp. What was important was the stop. Can we survive massive deceleration? So I challenge you to, to, to imagine this as I describe it. From 639 miles per hour on the verge of supersonic speed, faster literally than a 45 caliber bullet shot from a pistol, to zero in 1.35 seconds that is a force equivalent to an airplane crash. And what Stapp wanted to know is if a human being is properly restrained and properly enclosed, can we survive that kind of force? Because if we can, that means that we have the possibility not only to survive uh, uh, an ejection from a speeding aircraft or re-entry from space flight, but we might even be able to walk away from an airplane crash. He must have had some idea before he did that
5: sort of experiment that it would be successful that he would be able to well if not walk away be carried away and
2: still be alive well he started these experiments with with dummies what we would think of today as crash test dummies and he progressed from dummies to animal subjects he used chimpanzees to determine the 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 level of tolerance that he thought a human being could probably uh survive but very quickly put himself in the seat and uh Put, put his research to the test, basically, um, you know, put his money where his mouth was, so to speak, to prove that this could be done. I mean, it, it just sounds unbelievable that anyone let him even do that, that, that he would, you
5: know, it says something about the, the thinking at the time, that you could strap someone onto a, a rocket sled, accelerate them to near the speed of sound, and then stop them within, you know, what do you say, one and a half seconds?
2: Well... What I have to tell you is that staff superiors in the Air Force were not all informed, completely informed, about um, some, of the, some of the extreme experiments that he was doing. He was working out in isolation at Muroc Army Air Base, later Edwards Air Force Base, in the California desert. And there was no one looking over his shoulder. Nobody else wanted to be out there. This was this was this was tough country. So Stapp was working pretty much on his own. And uh, the few times that that the degree of danger that he was exposing himself to were reported back to his superiors at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. They got very concerned, and at one point ordered him to cease and desist. Stapp was a renegade, and he just kind of kept going and at one point worried that they were actually going to take his program away from him he ordered his chief engineer when he reported the data back to headquarters to divide all the numbers by 2 so <laughs> his superiors knew he was going fast they didn't know he was going twice as fast <laughs> as he was actually telling them and how useful was this research i mean what what did it feed into well it was incredibly useful in a number of ways. One of the first things that it did was it forced aircraft designers to strengthen their cockpits and strengthen the seats and restraints in their aircraft. To that point, aircraft designers had, um, had basically said, there's no need to build a stronger cockpit to withstand these kinds of forces because a human being can't tolerate them. The, the, the official book that the Air Force taught its flight surgeons was that the limit of human tolerance was 18 times the force of gravity. So aircraft manufacturers said, we don't have to build, build planes strong enough to, to support anything much stronger than that because the pilot's going to be dead anyway. Stapp proved that wasn't true, and he forced the uh, airplane manufacturers to build better cockpits and stronger planes, and that saved a hell of a lot of pilot lives over the years. And, of course, it fed into the space
5: program as well, and particularly those early flights, which were parabolic flights out of the atmosphere with quite high G-forces.
2: Right, and one of the one of the things that Stapp did, and he ran uh, these programs at Holloman Air Force Base with those big parabolic flights you're talking about, and one of the big things he did with that was uh, zero-gravity research to find out could a human being actually... Um, do useful work and be competent in a, in a zero gravity environment. So he ran tests with those big flights that gave you about, if they were flown properly, about 30 seconds of weightlessness at the top of the flight. And they learned how to, they learned how to work and how to move and how to, um, how to basically, be valuable contributors to, to the uh, nation's space program in those flights. Um, so there was a lot of work going on at the same time. Stapp moved from his, uh, these deceleration projects, these rocket sled projects, into high altitude balloon work. And that's where they really pioneered some of the original hardware that NASA later put into their space capsules. Not only the hardware, but the processes. How do you communicate with? Uh, you know, with, that, with an astronaut that's in a, that, that's in a rocket, you know, uh, above the Earth's atmosphere? How do you keep them safe and warm, give them a breathable atmosphere? STAP solved all those problems long before we ever even had a NASA. Truly the right stuff. Craig Ryan
5: talking about the incredible John Paul Stapp. And I was chatting to Craig at Space Fest in Tucson. His book's called Sonic Wind, which is available everywhere. That's, That's a, a joke Sonic, in there. Yeah, a joke, I know.
3: Yes. <laughs> Let's not go that. there. It's an
5: American book, and it, yeah, maybe it's a slightly British humor there. Yeah,
3: <laughs> absolutely. Well, every Space Boffins record collection includes, I am sure, Race for Space by Public Service Broadcasting. The album has had an overwhelmingly positive review and the band was one of the headline acts at the recent blue dot music festival where we were in fact at now if you've not heard it the record mixes archive from the space race with original electronic tunes and beats and it's brilliant
5: and all their music's written by frontman Jay j will goose esquire i caught up with him recently at the british science festival and asked him if he'd anticipated all the love from the space fan
6: community I think I was a bit less naive doing this album than I was when we did a song um, about Spitfires because that was one of the earliest sort of breakthroughs that we had, and um, I didn't realise at the time... You know, I knew Spitfires were were an important machine and I knew that people liked them, but I didn't realise how deep the, the feelings went. Whereas with Space, I think it was a bit more obvious. I was expecting to get a little bit more from the kind of um, false flag brigade, uh, <laughs> but there's been mercifully, mercifully little of that, actually, which has kind of reaffirmed my faith in humanity a little bit, although it's continually undermined by by other things on a daily basis. But yeah, starting this many years ago, I I never thought we'd find an audience of any kind. So um, I'm not surprised that people are moved by this incredible subject and uh, what an era it was, but I am surprised that people continue to like our music, really. That's
5: a continual source of of humbling surprise. Blue Dot was not an insignificant music festival to be one of the headline acts at it was a you know so it was, a, it was the first one but it was a big it was a big festival
6: it's just so easy to be humbled by it by you know just the scale of, of the level telescope and, and the history of, of that place and and being asked to play there it's the only gig we've ever done where i had a moment afterwards and i say thank you on the mic you know at the very end of the show not not everything is done by samples i say a brief thanks but um about halfway through it and i had to stop and just sort of run off stage and um kind of take myself off i i I don't know what it was about that show or about the timing of it or whether i was just tired because we'd got back from new york i think earlier that week and you know it's easy to get emotional when you're tired but um it was the first kind of home crowd thing we'd done for a while it was just it was such a sort of warm feeling from the crowd and such a lovely event to be part of it was yeah it was great it'd be lovely to go back there as as a headliner one day but um yeah we can't get ahead of ourselves
5: and do you now feel a, a space geek yourself? Do you feel, you know, that you've learnt a lot about space? Because you have immersed yourself in this archive, both the American archive, but also the, the Russian archive. I mean, that's, that's quite a rare privilege as well.
6: Privilege is a good word to use. I, I, do, I do feel something of an imposter. You know, my, my interest in the space race is genuine and, um, you know, longstanding, but music is the thing for me that's, that's kind of been the thing that's dominated my life um and, and the space race while an in interest is is not you know the overarching sort of interest of my life and and some of the people who we've spoken to some of the people who helped with the research of the album it very much is the case that you know this is the thing that that has kind of given structure and shape to to, to you know their interests or their hobbies or even that you know their jobs so you know you do have a bit of imposter syndrome um in in you know in general but um you know, I, I did a lot of research for it. I, th- I think it's important to know what you're to know what you're speaking about. I don't know how much of it I've forgotten already because I moved on to the next thing. Now, um, my wife works in TV, and, and she's forever kind of you know learning loads and loads about one subject, and then instantly you kind of have to do a brain dump and basically move on to the next thing. And I think to a certain extent that does apply in in the way that we work as well. But hopefully, I'm kind of maintaining residual knowledge along the way. Don't don't ask our drummer, Wrigglesworth anything though, because he. I don't think he still knows who the crew of Apollo Eleven were, let alone, uh, you know. I don't think he could give you the first name, the full name of the first woman in space. Let's just say, um, yeah, never ask him about anything.
5: <laughs> That's just shocking. Um, now you are moving on from space. You're not going to stick with space. You're going to do something something different.
6: Yeah, something um, I would say very different. I, I think it's important. You know. It, uh, kind of take my cue from all the people who I, I like musically and, you know, just artistically in general, and, and the people who I like most are the people who don't stay still and who don't kind of find a formula and stick with it and become formulaic or, or even veer off kind of towards more, you know, popular and populist kind of uh, ways of working, I guess. So um, I think we're going to do something a little bit different uh, in the way we approach it, in the way we approach archive, in the way we use it and um, the way we record it. Uh, I think, you know, we, we don't want to be a band who stands still. So whether or not we bring people with us who, you know, kind of got on board with the last album or whether or not we kind of have to rely on finding new people, I, I don't know, or whether everybody just goes, this is rubbish, get out. You know, that's part of the risk of, of creating anything, I suppose. But um, it'll be interesting to see how it
5: goes. Will you say what your next project is or are you keeping that quiet at the moment? Uh, I, no, sorry. <laughs> well, I have to ask. Yeah, and will you still keep those great pop songs like Gagarin and Go when you when you perform live? You're not going to you're going to abandon those. You're going to build up a a nice a nice stock of of, of past success.
6: Well, when we play live, we don't kind of you know we don't kind of stick to eras. You know, even within the the, the race for space, we jumped around chronologically willy nilly. You know, it's it's all over the shop in terms of the timeline, uh, quite deliberately. And when we play live, it's much more about what flows musically into into you know you know, how how the set works musically rather than how it works in terms of the subject matter. And um, so, you know, the the, the the ones that have become the sort of live favourites very much kind of Spitfire and, and Go and, and Gagarin and, to a lesser extent, The Other Side and, and songs like that, I don't see them dropping out of the set any time soon because um, they're just great fun to play and it's great fun to get that reaction. But how the new stuff goes down, I think the music is actually sounding... Uh, uh, You know, song-wise, I think it's as strong as anything we've done, but it may be slightly undercut by certain other choices that we made. We'll have to see.
5: So when can we expect to know know more? How many months do we need to wait? Well, we're
6: recording it in January. Um, I'm about to pay the deposit on that, so that's, that's, you know, as as locked in as it's getting, I think. Um, And then hopefully something new will be, you know, approaching in April uh, with a view to sort of June-July release. That's the plan.
5: You know, who knows what life holds in store, but that's the plan. Jay Wilgoose Esquire from the band Public Service Broadcasting. We love that album.
3: I know. It, in fact, it gets played a little too often at home, actually, <laughs> right, to be honest. And that's uh, October's Space Boffins. I'll be in Germany again, but this time for the XMR's landing. So do say hello if you happen to be there as well. We know that there are quite a few uh, space scientists who are fans of the podcast actually there at uh, ESA's ESOC building? Otherwise, get in touch with us via Facebook or Twitter.
5: Space Boffins is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. And thanks very much to our guest, Head of Science here at Airbus Defence and Space, Ralph Cordy. Now, Ralph, we've been in the Mars yard for the whole time. We've got the uh, Mars rover with its six wheels, with its little eye stalk, they're doing various tests on it. And this is all great, even though it's now Mars. 2020, XMR's 2020. That is only three years away. Are you going to be ready? Yeah, I
0: think we're going to be ready. It's (laughs) a real test, isn't it? Everybody is going to be going for it. The engineers on the rover, the uh, people on the rest of the mission, and the scientists with the, the precious cargo of instruments. That's what it's for, to take those to Mars. So I'm hoping
5: everyone will be ready when it's going. Well, Ralph, thank you very much. And thanks for listening.
3: Thank you, but before we go, come on, can we just put a footstep on Mars?
5: Oh, okay, Yeah, come on.
3: Come on. Right, here we go. Up the ramp. (laughs) Mars is really funky. And we're on Mars. Oh, cool. Sinking into Mars.
5: It's not the noisiest of planets, is it? (laughs) Oops. (laughs) That's quite a lot of sand.